Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hey everybody, welcome back to Snakes and Otters. This is going to be episode 16. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. I'm Francis. So guys, this is an episode I want to talk about something that I've been percolating on a long time. And, and this is... This is one of our deals here. This is something we ought to argue about. If we don't stop ourselves, we'll probably talk for another three hours. <laughs> um, the sort of the traditional history of the, the American Civil War has a pivot point in 1862. And that pivot point is an important document in American history. It's an important document in the history of human rights and that's the Emancipation Proclamation. It's issued in fall of 1862 and part of that political history is that because the war was now explicitly about ending slavery in the New World that prevents the British from intervening on the side of the Confederacy. Um, despite British need for cotton, a huge part of their economy, they have a substantial faction in their political landscape that is anti-slavery. The Brits are really the first ones to crush the slave trade. Yep. But you know, I'm one of these guys that I like to poke a stick through the bars, so to speak. And I always like to look for something beyond the political and see if there's a strategic thing. And I keep coming back to the Battle of Hampton Roads. Very famous. It's in March of 1862. It's the first battle of the Ironclads. The Monitor versus the Merrimack. CSS Virginia. The CSS Virginia. Oh, yeah, right. Although popular culture still calls it the Merrimack. Yes. Yes, because Grand of the South did steal it, so it renamed it. But. Right, it, it was a, it was renamed. It was a Union um, wooden hulled ship that was renamed and rebuilt as an ironclad. The Monitor, a totally new design, completely iron ship, turrets, not a broadside ship. And I just I get to thinking about this battle as one of those kind of hidden strategic things. Again, if it if it is the battle that makes all the rest of the navies in the world uh, obsolete, well, why is that? What's the big deal? And so we need to lay a little background here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some background, but we need to talk a little bit about some, some politics, both in the U.S. and in Britain. And I want to try to answer the question... You're the guy in charge of the Admiralty in Britain. The PM walks Yeah, the first order of the Admiralty. The PM walks into your office and says, We've decided to recognize the Confederacy and intervene and break a blockade. What do you got? What can we do from a strategic standpoint? Well, Mrs. Robert, I, I think that there's so many different things that is going to go into that decision by the First Lord. Because it's not just 
the might of the British Navy that we're talking about here, because the British Navy is going to be pretty well stretched when you think about the empire at this time, because it truly yes. is empire. Right? Yes. They've got South Africa, they've got India, and they've got Singapore. So they are spread out across the entire world. And, it's and they've the, got stuff in the Caribbean still. Right. The sun the, never the, sets the, on the right. British That's Empire. where the phrase comes from. The right. sun never sets on It's always daytime somewhere in the on British, British soil. Yeah. Exactly. So they're stretched pretty thin. I would have to wonder if they even have the ability to commit much to the, uh, to the war. Right. Now, even if they were able to just to commit, say, a squadron of 8 or 12 ships, that probably would have been enough to wreak enough havoc uh, because we didn't really have much of a real navy at this point because we didn't need one prior to the war and the war was fought on land. So aside from some ships uh, that were out there uh, blockading, you know, we didn't really have a whole lot ourselves to go against uh, the British. Up until the point of the, of the monitor, right. it, is, it is very much still kind of that Wooden walls, that wooden navy, right. sail navy, gunboats. Yeah, everything's still a broadside. Uh, very little sail from our perspective, although that's what most of the British ships still are. Well, most ocean ships are still sailing ships. Correct. Yes, that's right. River ships are that kind of that steam powered. That's right. There is steam involved, but for an open ocean vessel, sail is still important. Right. Because uh, you don't have the fuel to make it too far. Right, have to refuel, uh, Re and coal is the fuel. Right, yes, coal is the fuel. Right, we're not on fuel oil yet. <laughs> Easily. So, given that, there's a lot of limitations in what they can do, uh, given that they are stretched thin and what they would have available to send and what kind of ship they would have to be able to send. So, your contention is that uh, the PM would ask this question before or after Hampton Roads? After. After. We're saying. You're, again, you're you're the you're the first lord. You've just got news from America about the Battle of Hampton Roads, and you think that would prompt them to want to intervene? No, no. They're either going to intervene or not because intervention's a political decision. That's correct. They're probably not going to. They're not going to consult ahead of time. I see what you're saying. You're saying here that the political powers that be don't understand or really care about the military situation. The strategic situation. Of well, it. yes, that's probably true. And, that's and they yes. made a political decision in the cabinet. Which Palmerston, who is the PM at this point here, was somewhat sympathetic to this. Now, a lot of it was... Now, you have to understand, Jefferson Davis was a big, big proponent of what he called the King Cotton Policy, thinking, you need my cotton, you need to help us to get it to you. We've got yes. plenty for you here. Uh, but you need us. That's an important point. Is because Palmerston did believe this. Right. The South strategy early. for surviving the war is to get British intervention. And they sure. felt like withholding cotton uh -huh. would prompt that British intervention. Also, they knew once that the, the floodgates are opened, they can trade cotton for anything else that they cannot manufacture enough of themselves. Yes. So it's a, ultimately, it's a long-term strategy here. It's very short-sighted, though, because there are other many alternatives that Palmerston doesn't want to have to worry about, but ultimately that's what happens. Well, it they costs a lot more to get your cotton from India than it does to get it, it from does. America. Uh, there were other continental sources, though. It's not the only one. So there were, there were some... And there's African sources That as is well. correct. There's there's there, in the Mediterranean. That, that requires a retooling. That's why your, lim your window is very limited. 
That's why you're saying in early '62, they no, had they had put thing. they had not put in place those cotton needs that they would later by the end of right. the year they're already it's already done. Right. They've got the, they've got their cotton. Jefferson Davis doesn't matter and all that. Yeah, I'm thinking of that again. That summer of '62, that period of time after this revolutionary battle at Hampton Roads. The first battle of the ironclads that supposedly make all the rest of the navies of the world obsolete. And then this uh, political strike that now, Lincoln makes. Right. This this very can, important political you Lincoln know, is afraid, yes. Lincoln is afraid of the soft intervention. It was very close. They almost did it. And a soft intervention is we're not going to recognize you per se. But we're going to tell the world we want to mediate between the two of you, which has implications, meaning you don't, you do not, that recognizes them yeah. in, in implicitly, yeah, without as actually, equals. as, as yeah. equals. It, it recognizes there's two parties here. If we have to be the big brother to intervene, there's a legitimacy here. Yes, the South does, would have, the South would have grant, taken that. Grant, yeah. The South, what they really wanted is, is what you're proposing, is the hard intervention. Hard intervention. Send troops. Yeah. yeah. Get break these the, guys off my yeah. break, break, break the, the blockade. blockade. That's the hard intervention. Yeah. There's really, there's almost no chance of that ever happening. We've said well, that. But, but, but let me put two things here for you. One, I don't want to discount the deftness of Lincoln here. I think Lincoln is always... Deft. D-E-F-T, yes. not, not deaf as in can No, hear. the maneuvering yeah. that he does here, um, I don't think he gets credit for this kind of being this great politician oh, like yeah, this. But he, the Emancipation Proclamation has limitations. Yes. It really, it announces it's going to free the slaves, but only in areas in open rebellion, rebellion. to the United States. So Maryland, slave state, Unaffected. Kentucky, Kentucky, Kentucky slave state, unaffected. Yeah, Delaware, Missouri. Missouri. Yeah, those are the four. And it's only really enforceable in places the Union Army occupies. Mm -hmm. So you're talking, what, western Tennessee? West Virginia. <laughs> West, you know, uh, yeah. northern Mississippi. Well, West Virginia's not in rebellion anymore. <laughs> so, so, which I still say is an illegal state, but that's another, another subject. Yeah. So that's one thing. I, I, again, I, I, I want to talk about strategic concerns because they always fascinate me. Again, political things are important, right? But the strategic aspects once fascinate you, me. Once you throw that domino over, a lot of things happen. Yeah, and so, that when it, that's when it becomes no longer a political question. So this would have to have been done before the. You're suggesting that if it ever happened, it would have to be before the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there's yes. no question. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. Now I, I'm not challenging that at all. Again, right. the Emancipation Proclamation. Does completely take it off the table. Take it off the table for Britain, which is exactly what Lincoln wanted, what among wanted, many other things. What he wanted, that's because what he wanted. again, the anti-slavery politics in Britain, it's big. It's a big it's deal. Huge. It's big in the North too, not as a cause for the war, but just as a general. You know, that's sure. it bolsters so, Lincoln. Yeah, right. very much so. so. Uh, declaring stronger in certain areas than others. What? No, you had, you know, no, you had no. no. Okay. The other thing that I want to point out too, in addition to that, is there is some feeling in the cabinet for the hard intervention. Palmerston and Gladstone, Chancellor of the Exchequer, are in favor of intervention 
because it weakens the United States. And they are desirous of that as economic competitors. See, that's a political question, though, that you right. don't really want to go to. Well, so. but it's, it's again, that you're, it's July 1862. Right. Well, my contention is you can't separate the two. Yes. I don't think you can. The political, in an ideal world, the political sparks the strategic. And by strategic, I presume you mean the military. Yes. Because... But not always. Sometimes yeah, they're... But I mean, here, I think that's what you're... They're divergent. To. And that's what I want to explore is you've made this political decision to intervene. The rest of the cabinet talks... In the real world, the rest of the cabinet talks Palmerston and uh, Gladstone out of it because they have other strategic concerns. You've mentioned that. Russia is a big strategic concern. They, France they, is still a concern. Yes. yes. Um, but... What if they do make that decision okay. in cabinet? Let's presume they do. Yes. They decide, all right. And without, without thinking about this military and the strategic. Right. So they're thinking, this is the third time. We've got to put these guys in their place, finally. And it's good it's for us long term. It's good for the Brits long term. Even if they don't take over the U.S. again, you know, to restore the colonies. Weakening us is always a good thing for our rivals. And at that time, they are a rival. And so... For them to be able to intervene, they've got to be able to send enough ships to do something. So the question is, what is it they really want to do? And your question is, break the blockade. And what effect does the Battle of the Monitors have? Right? That's right. The, where this revolves. Right. So if that's the case, you know, I agree that philosophically, the Battle of Hampton Roads does make every wooden hulled ship obsolete. But that's a philosophical statement, not a reality statement. Because it's going to take it's going to take years for enough iron hulled ships to be put into service to have an effect on all of the wooden hulled ships. Okay? Especially when you think about you now in Europe, either around the North Sea, staying around the coast of England and going down France, Spain, and into the Caribbean, there are plenty of places for you to get fuel. You know, plenty of ports, anyways. So there are less concerns about supplies. And they don't have coal tenders yet the way we would think of today, fuel tenders, because there's no need. You have to go into port to recoal. You have to go into port to recoal. So I don't think that they're going to be too worried about sending the capital ships that you talked about, the two that are fully capital, ironclad or iron-hulled right. ships. Right. The, uh, let me just interrupt you for a moment. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some background. The top level of the British Navy right now are two warships, the HMS Warrior and the HMS Black Prince. And they are not ironclad. They are iron hull. But they are still sailing ships. Oh, they are still sailing ships. They, they are coal-powered steamships. Oh, they're they're combination. They're, they're the 1860s version of a hybrid. Right, right. <laughs> they're, they're, the hybrids. They're, the, they're a Prius with guns. Yeah, I can't picture that. <laughs> I can't picture that. I can't, no. That, I, I have seen a Prius with an NRA sticker on it once. But, that had uh, to be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but Previous owner or something. I don't yes. Know. So they are, they, but coal is used to get underway. Sure. to get Because there's no wind to get you out of port. Right. And so then yes. you sail... It's a maneuvering yes. capability. And then once you get where you're going, 
you have to recoal. Yeah. Now they are not turrets. They are broadside still. Right. Their There's, armament is still, they are still down the length. Uh, the guns are still yeah. down the length of the ship. Whereas again, the monitor is this unique vessel with this turret right. that can fire in any direction. Maneuver becomes less important for a monitor. Right. Although, but it is still everything for the British ships that you're speaking of. To a degree. To a degree. Now keep in mind, and we mentioned this, and I'm fully willing to concede this part of it, is the monitor is not an open ocean vessel. Right. And military engagements at this time, Navy engagements, are never open ocean. They're almost always harbor, coastal uh, battles. Right. World War II Navy engagements are the exception. Yes. There are, there are almost no instances of open ocean naval warfare until... The Jutland, right. right? And even you know, even though when you think about it, even in World War II, most of them are going to be near some body of land, yeah. whether it's the Hawaiian Islands or Midway, or there's those are the strategic points. The, right, they're the strategic points. That's why why are all the river? Or why are all these old cities on rivers? Because it's where the water is. It's where it's, you know it's strategic to be there. So, yes, I agree that um, there are no open ocean. Uh, very few rare open ocean fights between naval vessels. Trafalgar being an exception, I suppose. Is it? It's off a of harbor, though, isn't it? That's, uh, it's still pretty much open ocean. There's too many. There's they have how far off land is it? Uh, I, I can't say exactly. Miles, though. Yeah. Well, but miles. The, but it's for the control of a harbor, isn't it? If I remember the history right. Uh, but you're the you're the you're the Napoleonic expert. I will I will bow. It is your, not a master and commander situation. Oh no, not at all. It and is, that's the kind of situation he's talking about that we just don't see. They're going to be a lot closer to land. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it was well. Trafalgar's probably its own episode. I don't want to go much into that. Yeah, <laughs> I probably shouldn't so, have mentioned. Yeah, it, let's but not. It's okay. So. I st my contention in this is one that the, uh, the, the, right, the common thinking, the common wisdom is that, yes, philosophically it's correct, but in reality I think it's total bunk. I don't think that Interesting. The, the wooden hulled ships immediately become, you know, I mean fighting ships. I don't mean, you know, anything that might go up the rivers. I'm talking about real fight ships of War the ships. Real ships. Real warships. Because the monitors can't come out to meet them beyond a certain point without foundering. Yes. Okay? In fact, the monitor is lost being because towed yes. in, in the ocean. It's, it's lost. And so way. the sailing ships also can't go too far into the coast without being put in danger. Now, exactly. early on, there are far more sailing ships, wooden hulled ships, than there are monitor-class vessels. So early on, uh, they could conceivably overwhelm any particular instance, not necessarily to sink, but certainly, you know, certainly they could overwhelm to either bring supplies or do whatever to drop drop off troops if they wanted. But more importantly, they're just going to go where the monitors aren't. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are what is there? These are Union gunboats that they would be facing. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's it's coastal defense. It's blockade. Um, so you're talking about. Steam power, coal power, uh, probably not a sailing ship per se. These are more short-range defenses. Think of what Grant would have done if he had the monitor on the Mississippi. He did eventually. Yeah. Well, yes, he did but eventually. I mean, early on, though, when he's when he's fighting, you know, he, he doesn't have... At Vicksburg, for example. Right, at Vicksburg. Yeah, there, yeah. there you go. So, you know, it's... 
they're not designed for the, their function is not to, to take on those capital ships yet, because right. by definition of what it is. So if they're going to intervene, they want to break the blockade. The blockade is actually held together by other wooden sailing ships. So you're saying the Admiralty could respond to the PM and say, well, let's not risk the two capital ships, but we can still do something. Right. I think they're going to say one of two things, depending on what the, the PM wants to do. Uh, and maybe he wants to do both, because at some point you have to do both. Because if you're going to break the blockade, you're going to eventually have to commit troops. So they're going to say, all right, we need you to break the blockade. We need to get cotton out and supplies in, probably gunpowder and uh, tooling of some kind, because there's no industry in the South. Steel. Steel, yes, they're going to need steel. So they're going to want to break the blockade to be able to get things in and to get cotton out, because ultimately that's, that's part of the goal here. So they just go farther south. They go to Georgia. They go to Florida. They go to South Carolina. And those are the places where they're going to be relatively free from the monitors. Even though the monitor went from New York to Hampton Roads, that's through mostly, or pretty much all, Union-held territory. They could go ashore anytime they wanted. And I imagine they needed to go ashore often because I don't think the thing was terribly reliable yet. So Well, and coal burns fast. And coal burns fast. So you coal up when you start, you sail. When you get where you're going, you've got to coal up again. Can the South do that? Well, and they'd have to fight for any coal that they needed. They, they're not going to get it. Yeah. So they the, can only the get South is at the they're at the kind of the limit of their coal. Just keep their railroads and their industries going too. Right. They're not going to have stuff sitting near a shore where a monitor could you know could seize it. So <laughs> that's not gonna, so that's why I think that the monitors are only going to be an option if the British try to attack the North directly, and they're not going to do that. They're going to send troops to Canada, or they're going to land troops in Florida or. Interesting. But so, what they did in the War of eighteen twelve is the British fortified Canada. Uh, they'll well, probably they were afraid do, we were going to invade which, Canada. We did. We always we, want to invade Canada, right? Which we've kind of done, but it's cultural. So we did conquer Canada culturally. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, Canada. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry for always wanting to invade you. Yes, because they're so nice up there. So what you're suggesting then is, if they've got to go south here, we're talking about a convoy system. Oh yeah. We're talking about, in many respects, the same thing that the, we did in reverse to the British Islands during World War One and World War Two, mostly World War Two, uh, in order to, to bring stuff in and make sure it gets there and take stuff back out again. Right, but you know what? They only have to. Um, depending, I, I don't know the numbers of warships we have outside of coastal blockade. I know right. it wasn't a huge amount, but they may only have to go so far. Mm -hmm. Before you know, they can send all the stuff they want, sure. and they just meet up at a predetermined area, a rendezvous, and then they're shepherded in. Right, that's what it would have to be because, and you'd have to have enough warships to take on any Union resistance in that area. See, how, how, much, is, uh, how much are we talking about? Here? Yeah, this is what I love because I, I love putting this out there. It's almost like an untempered blade. I'm putting it out there. And you guys are the hammer and the anvil, and it's either going to shatter or get stronger. And what you're showing me is that even though I tried to consider a lot of strategic things, I haven't considered enough. Well, I tried to look at, again, those capital ships, those two... Yeah, I think you're just focused on the wrong ships. Would they risk those ships 
And if they're not willing to risk those ships, I thought that pretty much put the possibilities of intervention out altogether. But those are European ships. Yeah. Due to the techno technological limitations of the time, they've got to stay close to Europe. They yeah. have to. Yeah, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't yeah. think they would that's risk those no, two ships. No, you're talking about your standard intercontinental ocean-going ships that are still very much alive. Clipper ships, that sort of thing. Uh, warships, British warships, ships of the line. They would have to, just similar to the way it was in the Revolution. When the French arrived, they came in a flotilla and they blockaded you know, Yorktown. That's the same thing we're talking about except in reverse. You're bringing mm -hmm. in a fleet that allows the merchant ships to come in and out. And your all's contention is that the British could still do this yeah. without risking uh, Black Prince and Warrior. Absolutely. Right. I, I think the ability Interesting. Is there. I, I find that interesting. They've got enough, but it requires an enormous commitment of resources that they may or may not be willing to do. And, that's and the, that is the other thing. I think that's where the cabinet eventually did end up because, again, they did dissuade yeah. Palmerston and Gladstone. Because to have a good there convoy other, system, yeah, there were other, you got they to have would have had to have built, built more ships, which the British are doing. You know, I mean, that, the, the Navy is the thing. So, yeah. But they, I don't think they would ever have been able to bring, off, bring enough of them online fast enough uh, to, to make it uh, something that could support that kind of a decision. Because that's the other thing. You know, how many ships do they have sitting in the harbor in England? Because that's where they'd have to come from for the most part. Yeah. England, Scotland, Wales, maybe somewhere else that's close by, but you know, there's, there's time to uh, tell the ships to return home that you have to consider. Mm -hmm. And then when they get home, they're going to need some rest and refit. Mm -hmm. So it's six months to a year before you can send a flotilla out. And then it's too late. What you may, I thought for a second about arming merchant ships. British East India Company. Two ships. Yeah. British East India Company did this, you know, famously for a long time uh, for pirates and during the uh, Napoleonic Wars and things like that. But you can't get enough of those. I think because the Union gunboats are pretty formidable at this point, you've got to have full warship intervention. I don't think armed merchant ships going in and out would fly. Probably not. I mean, the, the blockade was not strong everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they did get stuff through. Sure. But it was usually smaller, faster right. ships. Runners. Not, yeah, blockade runners. Not huge ships that could carry a lot of cargo, mm -hmm. which is where you would need a large uh, flotilla presence to guarantee and the safety they, of the ships. And they capital be, ships to and guard they, that's that. That's right, because these bad boys would be big, they would be slow, and they needed something, you need a lot of frigates. Yes. Uh, yeah. Fast, light, warships, uh, 25 gunners, things like that. Oh, at least. Probably yeah. more than that. 25, 40, 50 guns. You do not need the 124 deck ships of the line. It's for a different type of warfare, naval warfare mm -hmm. here. And again, uh, you that's broadside versus, no, it's broadside versus broadside. It, yeah. it, it, it's totally unmatched. Yeah. It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight, for goodness sakes. And so another point, though, too, is the Union eventually does bring quite a few monitors online. But how long does that really take? That's the part I'm not familiar with. Is I, that 64 before there's really this substantial number? I mean, they do play a crucial part in the war eventually. They do... But it's in the interior. It seizes the rivers. It does enforce the blockade. The monitors are revolutionary. Yes, they are. they are. Absolutely they are. Very much so. I don't know that it takes long to build one, but there's no... Uh, 
uh, assembly line yet. Every ship is handcrafted. So, and everything, and almost everything is unique to every ship. You know, there's not, you know, I build this one part 50 times, and it goes on 50 monitors. Yeah. I build this one part for this monitor, and then I build this part for this monitor. Yeah, well, the concept so, of the assembly line hasn't even been, been invented yet. So, while I think in, any individual ship can be built relatively quick, because you know we have a lot of men to throw at any particular problem. And yeah, the the when you think about the industrial, that's the the key piece of the Union winning the Civil War is the industrial, industrial might. And you, you do have all of New York. You have Philadelphia. You have places. I think they can, operating from the same plans, even without assembly line production, yeah. they can produce these things identically and quickly. Eventually. But it does take... No, right. I would say it, do, it, totally it does take ramping yes. up. It does yeah. take ramping up. And I right. think that's part of the key. And I think that's you're exactly and right. And you have to because, learn how to build these. Yeah, because assuming then most of what you've got, there's a lot of perfect storms here. The Emancipation Proclamation is in pretty much January of 63. But you also have Vicksburg only six months away. And by the time Vicksburg is open and the Mississippi is open and the Ohio and all that sort of stuff, the and that's where the monitors real that type of yes. a ship really gets the, interesting. The forcing of New Orleans exactly opens the whole mouth and then so yeah, very so, good. Yeah, so again, I go back to the monitors. They're revolutionary, but it's one of those revolutions that takes a while. Uh, to liken it to something modern, the internet. The internet started from DARPAnet. Okay, so that took a while before that really started to catch. And even once the internet became quote unquote popular, it really took several years before it to really come to force in our lives. People didn't want to do commerce on the internet at first. You know, you know, we was trusted. You didn't know how secure it was and that sort of thing. So now, in the scale of human existence, that was a quick revolution. But in reality, from the initial yeah. design of it and usage of it, it took a while for that to be applied elsewhere. So yeah. I, I kind of look at it this way. It takes a while to tool all this stuff up to make the principles that you prove with Hampton Roads to be useful everywhere. That's a good point. And That's it also will point. require better fuel. Until you can go to the fuel oil and later to diesel, then you still have a hard time sending these kind of ships anywhere other than your coast. Now, larger ships that you can send up and down your entire coast would be a great way to keep somebody like England off of your soil. Well, that's where you, uh, in 40 years later, you've got the HMS Dreadnought, which basically is the revolution again, yes. where it changes all that. And that's when Teddy Roosevelt decides for the Great White Fleet. Hey, now, that one does take or take off a little faster. That's correct. Because, because we, you are talking about a, a much more potent industrial state right. uh, in Britain, in the U.S. Right. And, and they're just building on what they've learned yeah. 40 years prior, yeah. 30 years yeah. prior. Interesting, guys. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I thought I had it all figured out. And you, like history, there's always another layer to the onion. So we, to we peel broke off. this particular uh, steel well, instead of uh, no, strengthened you, it. You've yes, I, I think you've tempered it enough where I, I've got to go put it back in the fire some more. Yeah, I've so. got more things to look at because I thought if I look just looked at. Again, where the British Navy was, that state of what's its best ships, 
but I didn't think about well, where are this, what do they really need to make that a success? And again, I think we're very fortunate that they did delay the the, the uh, cabinet talked them out of this. Again, they did have other strategic concerns, particularly Russia, and then the politics come into play. So. I was I was hoping to undermine the politics with with the strategic, but it looks like they're too hand in hand. Too powerful. Yeah. It's two it's two pair. It's it's aces and kings together. I think the thing that it would have required a, a perfect storm, to use your phrase, for England and the Confederacy to be able to, to have England inter intervene, because they would have had to have decided, okay, we're going to try and break the blockade, uh, or offered it to mediate, which of course we're going to turn down. Uh, the North will turn down. Right. So if they try to break the blockade, that's one thing. As long, that, but that might be enough to cause a change in the rest of the war. Yeah. Because what happens with Antietam or Sharpsburg if you're from the South? Uh, because with that Union victory, pretty much that's what gives Lincoln the ability to say, no, maybe we can do this Emancipation yeah. Proclamation. I'm not surprised he waited as long as he did. Really. Yeah, he held it, uh, I think the story goes he held it since about July because he's being advised by his cabinet, yeah. hold it so it doesn't look like the last gasp That's of right, the failure. Right. It, it hold it until we've got something That's right. to hang it on. And, and so McClellan delivers just enough of a victory at Antietam. Uh, but he still hangs on to it for a few more months. That's why. And if he had held on to it a little bit longer, he couldn't have done it because the Fredericksburg is Fred next. Yeah, Fredericksburg right. is next. And, and Chancellorsville after that. Yeah, that Disasters. was not the Disasters. best time yeah. for the. the yeah. So it was mm -hmm. he, uh, Lincoln was very nuanced and very cagey, and uh, he did exactly <laughs> so the right thing. So if they do try and break the blockade, that's going to change where our dispersal of forces are. Mm -hmm. So maybe the South can succeed in their invasion of the North because there's not the same army to oppose them. Because we're going to be concerned about the Brits invading from the, from the north, so maybe we redeploy. Or we say, we're not going to worry about the Mississippi right now because it's not as big a deal. I'm going to bring Grant and Sherman and his army to the Mississippi, and I'm going to place it up in the New York, Pennsylvania area, and maybe we send them to Canada. I tell you what. That's an interesting what if that I don't think I, uh, that makes my head hurt. But taking Billy Sherman's people and saying, all right, come on, you, you Brits, come on in from Canada. Yeah. Because Sherman's people were very formidable. They were. And, you know, the Brits still would have been a very, you know, it's an oxymoron, but they would have been fighting a gentlemanly war in the sense that, you know, you still don't target officers. Uh, it's limited warfare in the sense that you fight armies, not populations. Yes, they're still showing up in dressed as targets with the red yeah. uniforms. <laughs> so, well, it's if they had decided to go forward, it's not just what happens with the blockade. Interesting. Yeah, and, I, and I, like I said, I don't want to go down a whole thing about Sherman because I could talk, I could drown you two guys out about Sherman. For an hour. Um, oh, easily, easily. Uh, well, and that's the great he's thing. A re he's a revolutionary figure all he of is. his own. He revolutionized yes. warfare in a way that even Grant and, and Lee. Exactly. You know, exactly. He's the first one that said, everybody is a target. Everything is a target. Yeah. And and there's a whole background to his military career that feeds into all of that and his attitude about the South. But, yes, that's a whole other. That's a whole other episode.
Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel. Yeah.